1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome
2: to The Tonight Show. Well, with a number of patients with coronavirus in ICU now at the lowest level this year, and Minister Simon Harris today offering hope that the government will give clarity for the coming months ahead, we're going to be joined by Green Party TD NASA Hurigan and Labour TD Jed Nash and UCD School of Medicine Professor Jack Lambert. Final whistle, Virgin Media Sports presenter Tommy Martin will bring us the very latest on the Super League chaos.
1: Super League is only about money, money of the dozen. I don't want to call them dirty dozen.
2: And in a market that has limited stock at present, but rising prices, we talked to financial advisor Karen Dieter about the Irish housing market and Kate Gleeson on why the pandemic made her give up on city living for the country life in County Mayo. And later, Dr Caroline West will join us on the highs and lows for people searching for love in lockdown and consultant in sexual health, Dr Aisling Loy on why people need to be mindful of their sexual health do get in touch on Twitter or hashtag tonight, VMTV. Evening, acting CMO Dr. Ronan Glynn said there may not be a need to recommend an extension of the interval between the first and second doses of some vaccines. Well, joining me here in studio is Green Party TD NASA Hurigan, Labour TD Jed Nash, and via Skype this evening, UCD School of Medicine Professor Jack Lambert. You're all very welcome to the program. we am going to go to you first, um, Jack Lambert we want to look at what Neffert was saying this evening in terms of the numbers and the ICU admissions, the number in hospital, etc. He seemed to say, look, things are very positive. The incidence across all age group is going in the right direction. We're turning a corner here. Would you agree with him? Do you feel positive, Jack?
3: Well, well, the the numbers over the last couple of weeks have gone down, but I'm I'm not sure I'm that positive because We've only had a couple of days of numbers going down to the 400, 300 range. School just opened up again. People are back out of lockdown. So the numbers could very simply go back up again in the next week or two as people start mingling again. Um, This doesn't mean we should stay in lockdown, but I I think it's too early to start uh, making predictions about the numbers yet.
2: I think you've said before in this studio, uh, Jack Lambert, that we should perhaps look at extending the intervals between some of the vaccines, in particular the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. The government now say they are considering this. You think it's a good idea? I take it.
3: Well, absolutely. Um, you know, if, if you have to give everybody two doses of the vaccines, um, they, the, there's compelling evidence now, I think, from the UK and from uh, from other places that even one dose of the vaccine gives you substantial protection. So the the best way to get herd immunity is to get people quickly vaccinated. Um, And the way you get them quickly vaccinated is not save two vaccines for one person. It's actually you give one vaccine to each individual. This is what they did in the UK. And they're they're up to almost 60% of people with one vaccine. And we're still hanging around 15 16%. So our numbers are a quarter of what the UK has achieved. So herd immunity, is is the way to go rapid vaccination is the way to go um, so yes i think it's a good idea
2: so do you think this is something we should have looked at at the start of the rollout of this uh, vaccine program jack
3: well well i th- i think in january the, the uk you know was ahead of the the curve they they made a decision to do that even when i think there wasn't you know all the evidence on immunogen- immunogenicity of these vaccines but yes I think I think we could have made decisions a lot quicker and I think that's been one of the challenges here is that you know Michael Ryan from the WHO says act quick you know make quick decisions this virus moves quick and I don't think we've moved as quickly as we could in many situations over the last year in terms of the COVID pandemic. And I think the, the vaccine initiative is, a, is another example. So yes, I think we should have moved quicker.
2: Um, should it apply to all age groups, uh, Jack? And what do you think this new interval should be? I think in Northern Ireland, it's 10 weeks, isn't it?
3: Well, what we see, we don't actually know because, like I said, there's not been studies done. I mean, these vaccines have only been released for you know the last you know six months. You know, the first vaccine didn't come into Ireland to the 26th of December, so it is a bit of a guesswork about what the interval should be. But but ha- extending it, you know, following the following the lessons from the UK, I think I think they they they've set the precedent, and I think we should look at best practice. So I think that's a perfect. Per- What's been done in Northern Ireland is a perfectly reasonable option based on the best evidence that they have from the UK.
2: We're just going to keep you on uh, the line there, uh, Professor. I want to go to my panel now. NASA compelling evidence, he's saying coming from the UK definitely merit an idea, and the problem is it's taken us too long to even get to the point that this government is considering this idea.
4: Well, I think that the situation is quite dynamic, and we have seen in the last, even just the last 10 days with um, changes, for example, to the advice around AstraZeneca that the advice around vaccines changes all the time. Obviously, unlike the UK, we're trying to make decisions in collaboration with our EU partners on whom we rely for the vaccines and our vaccine supply. So I think that there is merit in this argument. Um, I, I, you, we saw with the AstraZeneca vaccine when there were concerns around it, one of the suggestions was um, for people who had already taken the first dose, they would increase the, the time between that and the second dose to 16 weeks so that they could you know, take the time to do that research um, or or. or look at the outcomes there. So there there is definitely merit here. I think possibly for most families, you know, once we get into those lower cohorts who are less vulnerable people, then perhaps looking at the UK model, which as as Dr Lambert has said there, you know, we don't have the research behind it. We don't have the the full science behind it, but it's worth trying it if it would increase the the vaccine rollout and make it more available to people.
2: So do you think then they should keep the intervals as they are for those who are more vulnerable for the over 70s for example many of whom will already have received their first shot of the vaccine?
4: Well look if, if people are like you know, my, my parents when they went to get their vaccine they also got the appointment for, for their second dose and for those people it makes sense that they would stay on their schedule and they would continue with that and not disrupt the vaccine rollout any further what we're looking for here is simplicity but I think there is merit in this idea and as we move down the cohorts we're, we're going to start to learn more about how this vaccine is actually working
2: Isn't it interesting though um, that we've heard Dr Ronan Glynn say this evening and we've been talking about increasing these intervals for nearly a week now he said look if the supply is actually good we might need to have- have this conversation at all and I'm reminded you know that at the weekend we had a story in the front page of the Irish Times that Stephen Donnelly was looking at the possibility of trying to give the vaccines to the under 30s before the over 30s only to have that subsequently dismissed you know within 24 hours and it makes me wonder and question the communications around these you know quite fundamental changes or potential changes to the vaccine rollout?
4: Well, look, the communication is so important in, in terms of the public health strategy and we could definitely get better at that. Mm. And, and you know, we've been learning as we go, it's an incredibly difficult um, thing to get right. We are administering vaccines as soon as we get them, as soon as we, we have them in the country, they tend to go mm. out and we're trying to make it so that you know, the, the, that supply is there for you for your second dose. But I, I do think that, you know, th- there's a little bit of bluster coming from the opposition here. On one hand, they want full transparency and they want to know what all the plans are and might be. But then on the other hand, when they hear something, you know, being thought about that this might be a possibility, then, you know, it's, oh, it's an appalling vista that we might change the vaccine rollout. As I understand it, there, there is no intention to change it. Uh,
2: Jed, is that a fair um, summarisation, I suppose, of the opposition's position here? You want full transparency, you want to know what the government's considering, but ultimately they're going to c- consider things that they don't actually eventually follow through and then they could criticise for it. So ultimately... I think what you're saying is they can't win.
5: Well, no, there's actually been about 23 different changes now to the vaccination roll-in programme over the last few months. So people find it difficult to catch up um, with um, Stephen Donnelly's different musings. Um, He's flying more kites than you see in the Phoenix Park on a Saturday morning. And some of those kites have got stuck in the electric overhead wires and actually electrocuted them. Um, Frankly, what we would prefer is if he would just stick to the programme that he's announced uh, we back that. Uh, we try to be constructive because we should not play politics with the vaccination programme. We should be advised by our public health experts. We have across the water in the north essentially a living lab. We have seen uh, the efficacy of the first shot. Um, all of the indicators are, even though we don't have the definitive evidence, that it gives enormous protection. So there is some merit in considering extending out the frequency, but that will depend as well on supplies. So we will know later say on wants, this week.
2: Um... Stephen Donnelly, to do then? Do you want him to consider, you know, uh, spreading out these uh, vaccines between the first and second dose in the interval, pro, or do you want him to stick pro, to pro, the plan? Provide, provided, what, provided which is it? well,
5: provided, provided that the medical advice says that there was some efficacy for spreading that out and um, it will depend on supply if we've got sufficient supply we can stick to the program that we have at the moment if that means extending the supply and extending the intervals by a week or two to give what the doctor is saying is additional kind of herd immunity and making sure that first shots can get to the people who need it then that's a positive thing as well so we will be uh, led by public health advice on this the concerns that we have is that um, the minister himself is you know, going off on one occasionally without any advice. I mean, it was clear before he briefed uh, the Irish Independent and the Irish Times, obviously last Friday because it appeared in the papers on Saturday, they're considering um, vaccinating the 18 to 30 cohort, that in fact, Dr Glynn had dismissed that out of hand. So sometimes I'm really not sure what the minister is doing. Is he trying to keep up with social media likes with Simon Harris, appealing to the 18 to 30 age group? He seems to be more determined to do that than actually focus on what he should be doing. What we actually need is a minister for vaccines. Alan Kelly has said this from the get-go because the minister, in fairness to him, has a lot on his plate.
2: To come back in on that, I mean, there were lots of reports of the weekend about fellow ministers um, being totally enraged when they saw that report about the under 30s potentially getting vaccinated. That, as you say, Stephen Donnelly had gone off on one. Do you accept communication isn't great sometimes?
4: Well, I do accept communication isn't great sometimes. I, I think, you know, it has been a challenging year. What I would say is that... Um you know, what, what I hear in terms of frustration around the vaccine, vaccination programme is less about the under-30s thing, which in fairness was a bit of a, a, me, a media bubble and a bit of a phenomenon within the media and within political circles. But I didn't get that in terms of emails or anything. What I got was frustration with the, the general change from, from let's say, teachers, for example. And I, I absolutely understand that change. But I, I think, you know, the, the move to the age cohort is the way to ensure that the rollout is fast. And that's how we're going to okay. move to a society that's more open.
2: Um, speaking about a society that's more open, Jack. There has been a lot of speculation today and there will be over the next week about what the next phase of the reopening is going to look like. What do you think the government should prioritise? What is the safest way to reopen our society?
3: Well, well, there's really no right answer to this. I mean, every country's done things differently, but I think we should look at places where it's been safe, safe even in the middle of COVID, to, to, to allow things to continue to, to stay open. So, for example, you know, how many outbreaks have, have there been in, you know, religious, you know, establishments? How many outbreaks have there been in beauticians? How many outbreaks have there been in outdoor construction sites? And the answer is, since the beginning of time, very, very small numbers. We focus so much on keeping the schools open, letting the youth kind of been able to play sports. Um, and there's there's... And that's really important. But in parallel, it's really important, I think, to, to live with COVID safely. And I think we have to look at uh, when we open up, that we, we should open up safely and we should have all of our ducks in a row in terms of COVID mitigation, not say, let's wait and see if the numbers going up, we won't open up. I mean, I mean the UK's put together a roadmap for opening up, not based on wait and see, but based on really, 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 you know, safe plans. And you know you have to take chances and i think in safe you have to take some risks you can't stay in lockdown as as your only solution waiting for the vaccine rollout so I, I i think you have to look at what has been the safe situations over the last years and i've mentioned a few of them and we shouldn't be refusing to allow those to open because they're very important to, for Irish society to be able to get back to, you know, some new, some normal existence again, from beauticians to religious ceremonies to to opening up the industry safely, um, even opening up pubs outdoors. You know, we, we, we've, we, we're one of the few countries in the world that have continued to Keep pubs closed down because we say, "Oh, the Irish are going to get drunk and let their, you know, let their, uh, you know, guard down if they start drinking." There are safe situations, for example, outdoor situations, where we could, I think, safely, you know, take chances um, to allow people to get back to some semblance of normal.
2: Um, I just want to put that to you, Jed, because the Labour strategy at one stage was the Covid elimination uh, strategy. Suppression. So would, or suppression strategy. Mm-hmm. Would you then disagree with Jack that we need to take some chances? We do need to start reopening at this point. I,
5: I wouldn't agree that we should take risks. We should take informed decisions about what we can do successfully because what we don't want to see happen, and I think NASA would agree with me on this, is um, a series of situations that might arise where we need to lock down our economy again. If we did some of the things that we had proposed from the start, for example, in a bid to avoid national lockdowns, to look at areas where there may be a localised outbreak in the future, and that will happen, um, you know, when behaviour changes, but depending on how the vaccine rollout goes as well. focus public health resources in those small geographic areas, hunt the virus down and suppress it there to make sure the economy more broadly can operate successfully. and fairness to government, they have belatedly taken on some of the elements of our suppression strategy, um, walk-in centres, testing at the airports and so on, and that's important and we we should beef that up as well, but beef up our public health response in a more localised fashion to deal with outbreaks where they arise.
2: Um, Very briefly, um, Jack Lambert there mentioned pubs and being allowed to socialise outdoors. Is that on the government's agenda? Is that something that might be in that plan next week? The open-up strategy is on
4: the agenda for the Cabinet in the next week. I think that won't be the first thing that happens. I think, you know, hairdressers and retail are probably first on the list so that people can, you know, go go and buy their, their kids' shoes without um, being surrounded by tape and, and all sorts of things. I do think, actually, that the Labour suppression strategy had a lot of merit. We're at a really perilous time right now and we need to get this right and, and
2: just be that little bit conservative about it. All right, we're going to leave it there for the with the panel for the moment and move on to the world of sport and Virgin Media sports presenter Tommy Martin joins us now via Skype on what has been, Tommy Martin, a pretty busy sports day amid this Super League chaos. So tell me what was so wrong, uh, Tommy Martin, with the Champions League?
6: Oh, uh, I, I, I know we can in sports sometimes get a little bit sort of wrapped up in the importance of what is ultimately just kind of trifling stuff, really, in the bigger scheme of things of what's going on in the world, but I've never. I don't remember a day like our last 24 hours like there has been since this Super League uh, thing came out yesterday. It honestly feels like the world of football and and sport has been torn apart. Like, really, there's been an unbelievable backlash of disgust, anger, um, real sense of this being a, a, a milestone or a sort of crossing the Rubicon of what has been happening in the game for decades now where, where football has been commodified, it's been going on for about 30 years where, you know, the game has been commodified and, and you know, um, chased increased revenues. But like anything, whenever you have capitalism that that is unfettered and unchecked, you know, the, reven- the inequalities have grown greater and greater to the point now where these clubs feel powerful enough and feel strong enough to say that we are going to form our own competition, we're going to take our ball, and if you don't like it, you can get stuffed, and while they are the big, powerful clubs that think they can do what they want, there seems to be a real outpouring of anger from everybody—from fans to broadcasters. Who, you know, some of the some of the broadcasters, and I speak as somebody who works for one who working with Champions League. Look, we've been covering this over the last few decades, but this is this seems to have drawn a line in the sand that has brought re- a real sense of of just disgust at at what has become of what is what is for everybody who fell in love with the game as kids, a really romantic thing that they love and, and, and is really special to them.
3: Tommy,
2: When I first heard about it um, this morning, to me it sounded like a bit of a done deal. As the day went on, we heard from FIFA and UEFA, which we just heard from uh, there in that clip a little earlier in the programme, heard from the Premier League themselves, heard from so many high-profile people, as you mentioned, within particularly, I suppose, English soccer. I'm wondering now, is there a genuine question mark over it? Do you think there has been such a backlash that these teams and their owners, I suppose, specifically, Will ultimately change their mind.
6: What I think people suspect may happen here is that you know if um, UEFA and the the leagues are able to hold the line on this and say, fine, if you want to go, you'll be kicked out of all the competitions. Your your players won't be able to play in World Cups. Um, you won't have any access to to the. You won't be able to play in your domestic leagues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The, the problem being that that it'll end up in court. It'll be a long drawn out. Um, unpleasant legal battle. The only winners will be the lawyers, as always. And what 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 people think may happen then is this will just be another stage of the brinksmanship. Where eventually this will they will back down because the anger has been so great, and I think even greater than they anticipated. And uh, and, and that what it will eventually be is a sort of a, a compromise within what the champion within a new version of the Champions League that is a little bit like what they want, but not quite as sort of you know completely, ridiculously um, focused on their needs as, as, as the Super League proposal. You asked me, sorry, your first question was what was wrong with the Champions League. The problem with the Champions League is it wasn't generating enough money for them. It wasn't giving them the power and the security of participating in every every year that they wanted. And there was too many pesky little clubs from little leagues uh, around Europe that they didn't want to have to be bothering themselves playing every week. So, you know, that is what they are pushing for. It's been it's been going on for decades now, um, you know, and, and it's a bit like it's a bit like children, you know. If you if your kid comes to you looking for sweets, and you give them sweets, they don't they don't say oh I've had enough sweets. They come back looking for more, and that's what UEFA has done with the rich clubs. Every time they come back looking for more money and more um, more power in these competitions, they get more, and they come back looking for more, and they get more. And what's happened now is ultimately it's never enough. Like, it's never, they are never going to be happy. So now what UEFA and the Premier League and the other organisations have decided to do is call their bluff and say enough is enough and...
2: Put them on the the naughty (laughs)
6: step.
2: Put them on the naughty step. That's what I say. Enough's (laughs) enough. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Tommy Martin, thanks so much for your time this evening. Uh, And Labour's Jed Nash, thanks for coming in, and Professor Jack Lambert. Nasa Hurgan will be staying with us, and after the break, with rising house prices across the country, we talked to one woman who gave up city living during this pandemic to move west and hasn't looked back. Very welcome back now with more and more people looking to get on the property ladder, but property prices continuing to rise. Green Party, DD nassau Hurigan is still here. And we're also joined by financial advisor, Carl Dieter. Carl, you're very welcome to the programme. I think it is fair to say that, you know, this time last year, as the pandemic really started to bite and we entered, you know, the first lockdown, that there was maybe an assumption out there that house prices in particular would start to fall, wasn't there?
0: Of course there was if you ask any student uh, even those who had never looked at finance or economics you know you've got a global pandemic uh, loads of businesses shut down what do you think will happen to house prices just that simple question I think most of them would co- correctly answer well they'll probably be affected they'll probably fall uh, the government stepped in to, to to fill that gap and it actually resulted in an outcome that I, I don't think many people saw coming uh, and I would have been wrong like on that I, I I figured house prices would have faced an adjustment because of this when in fact they've shown to be very resilient. So it it surprised a lot of people, um, people who had then thought about maybe not starting developments, were were kind of holding off for a while. It's fed into a a whole host of other issues, along with things like shutting down construction, which, you know, huge policy errors. And when you add those things all up, it means that we're in a situation now where we, we still have these stubbornly high and rising house prices and it's, uh, it's it's gonna impact a lot of people.
2: And is it across the board? Is it rural, urban Ireland? Is it, you know, your two bed apartment and your three bed family semi?
0: Well, it, like there's not really a housing crisis in Roscommon, Leitrim. There's not a housing crisis in Tipperary. There's loads of places. Now people can say the houses are too expensive. There's a separate argument, but there's still a lot of places in Ireland where you can't build a house um, for the, the, the price that a house will sell for. In other words, just the, the prime cost or the, the materials and the labor that go into it cost more than you can buy a second-hand house today. Uh, there is, and it's really, it's focused on Dublin, Wicklow, Meath, Cork, Galway. There's big pressure points, but they're the ones where we just repeatedly seem to, to have this inability to deliver at scale.
2: But in those other areas, I'm thinking Donegal, Leitrim, Longford, I could go on and on and on. What's happening, house prices there? Are they not beginning to rise too?
0: Well, they do, they do. And, uh, you know, that's part of coming out of massive oversupply from the financial crisis. uh, But a lot of them still, it still doesn't make sense to to build new things. Uh, What's happening now, though, and it's, it's a new dynamic, is that with remote working rising so quick, you are actually seeing a lot of people buying far away from where they traditionally would have lived with their work. Now, the banks copped onto that pretty quick, and they've asked for confirmation from employers that you can work remotely on a permanent basis. If you can't, then those mortgages aren't going to go ahead. But there's a lot of people where that is the case, and so they can have all the benefits of a you know, high-flying city job, But with all the other benefits of maybe living closer to their loved ones or closer to the areas that they would have traditionally liked to live but a commute wasn't realistic
2: well actually joining us via skype from her new home in cross malina is co-founder of two store kate gleason who abandoned city life in dublin during the pandemic uh, to move to county mayo kate you're very welcome to the program I think it's fair to say that you never would have considered yourself to be the type of person that was going to leave city life until COVID and the pandemic hit. Tell us what happens.
8: Um, yeah, so exactly that. I never would have really thought that, um, country life would have been for me, but essentially the pandemic hit and myself and my fiance were sale agreed on a property in Dublin we wanted to wait for the sale to go through and so kevin my fiance said let's go to cross malina for a couple of weeks we'll wait for this to go through and just ride out the storm of covid that we obviously didn't think was going to be going on for so long and a year later still there (laughs) so haven't left.
2: so for yourself and um your partner you were both what working at home from home rather, in apartments in Dublin, in house shares with other people waiting for this sale of your first home to go through?
8: Yeah, exactly that. So we were, at the time, we were um, both in separate houses and house sharing, which obviously was, which is what a lot of young professionals do in Dublin, but that doesn't really lend itself to remote working. So suddenly I found myself in a sitting room and sharing an office with, three other people and then obviously with Kevin he was in a separate house so I wouldn't be able to see him so that's when we made the decision to um, to go to the country.
2: And there was a house there I know your partner's family had a house that was sitting there that was vacant as you say away you went for your 10 weeks and then everything changed why are you there now permanently?
8: So um, well a few things changed I was Put at risk of redundancy and and was subsequently made redundant, which makes you kind of think about the weight, I guess, of a mortgage and what you're taking on, and and just just taking really a step back from from everything and just kind of really thinking about your goals again. So um, actually, just began to realise there that um that I actually did really like you know the countryside and being around nature and not really taking on um such such a, a huge commitment um in in a in a city when realistically the city will always be there and um so so it did it did really seem like the the right thing to do to actually just pull out from the the property and and kind of see what happened see what happens overall for us um
2: and for you so yeah, um that- Your quality life, I think you would say, has improved. I know you're living amongst beautiful countryside there in not an apartment, in a lovely big house. I've seen the pictures in the Irish Times. I know you were speaking to them uh, at the weekend. But you also started your own business.
8: Yeah, yeah. Um, I started my own business at Tooth. So it's an online sustainable store. And I definitely think the countryside has helped me kind of think more about goals, not kind of being—I suppose for me, maybe kind of going with emotions. Then I took a step back, thought actually, I really have the wanted to set something up and set something up that was close to my heart and work with local makers in in Ireland. And definitely, being the countryside has helped. Like being part of a community, people have passed on details. I get to work with local makers within the West of Ireland. I know all the couriers, and you know, I have a front door that, let's say if we bought the apartment, I wouldn't really be able to have that kind of coming and going of products, et cetera. So that has definitely helped um, with setting up my business without a doubt being in the country. yeah,
2: uh, You're selling it to me, West, is certainly best sometimes, I have to say. Uh, thanks for taking the time to speak to us uh, and best of luck with the business. Thank you so much. And that's, I wonder, is that music to the ears of this government? Is that one of the solutions to the housing problem? As Carl was saying, you know, it tends to be Dublin, Cork, Galway. And what you would love ideally is for lots of young couples like Kate and her partner to suddenly realise, you know what, we can move out west and, and have a great quality of life there.
4: Well, I think over the last few decades, Ireland has struggled with regional development generally. And we would like to see, you know, communities really supported and 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 the best way to do that is to make sure that there are young vibrant families going into communities obviously we need to get that right and and obviously that's something that that the greens have, have done a lot of work on and we put a lot of that in the program for government so things like town centres first that program to make sure that you know your village your town is strong it has a you know it has shops it has post offices it has schools it has creches and it's a, it's a real vibrant place um things like transport even if you move to the country you probably need proper infrastructure broadband um you know a- access to to the kind of the basics. So that you can really live there. I do think that we're going to start to see that more and more. That's not going to solve the problem in Dublin in the long term. I don't think we're going to see the kind of uh, numbers that we would need to take the pressure off the housing market in Dublin. And that remains a significant challenge.
2: Um, It was interesting to hear Kate saying, look, they were sale agreed there. They were about to close on an apartment um, in Dublin and, you know, subsequently pulled out of that. I was listening to a recent podcast. I know you were listening to it too with um, David McWilliams. And he said, look... Any young couple out there, anybody in their 20s or 30s who's in a position to buy at the moment, stop, walk away. The market is utterly dysfunctional. Would you agree
4: with that? I with would price? absolutely agree with that. I think that we haven't just seen prices go up in my area, which is inner-city Dublin. You're seeing them skyrocket beyond all all you know realistic numbers. And I, I think that... Um, for, for particularly for young couples or for for young people trying to get on on the the first la- you know the first rung of that ladder, it's almost impossible now, um, and there are many reasons for that. Um, some of which is that you know sites were not able to operate during lockdown. Um, many developers, it wasn't just the the site closing down; they actually paused the development um, to see what the the lie of the land would be after COVID. Um, there are increasing uh, construction costs, some of which is due to Brexit, um, and obviously we have you, you know quite. Uh, onerous uh, mortgage um, requirements here and less competition in the banking sector at the moment. And about to get. Uh, and about to get a lot, a lot worse. So it really, really is difficult for people. Um, and I, I don't know that the solutions are really in, in place yet to solve that.
2: Mm, what was very interesting also in that podcast um, uh, from Dave McWilliams, he was saying, you know, one of the big uh, knock on consequences of COVID is that people aren't putting their houses on the market because we can't operate viewings and people don't think they're going to get a good uh, price unless somebody can actually come and see their houses. But he also said there are people who are buying houses unseen. Such as the level of panic that is out there. Is that right, Carl, is that what you're finding?
0: Well, I wouldn't say that that's all in the main, the way it's working, but but those things do happen. Uh, But I I, I think there's a bigger point to be made is that when people say that I want to buy a house, like we said there's loads of dysfunction in farming, don't buy any food. Like that's, no one would listen to you saying that. The issue is, and I agree to the extent that there is dysfunction in the market, is that people aren't always making a sensible financial decision when they buy a home. There's a host of other things that can be happening. And um, so, like you saw, Kate, I- I'm happy for her. She found something wonderful in her life, and it's working out. But you know, she said, "I got made redundant. I started to think about what I'm doing with my life. That can be a motivation for wanting to move away. But you have other people where you know they might be having children and they need to to think about having their own place or a more suitable place or they want to move somewhere. That, that might have a school near it or out of the city center or into the city center and and there's all these other things happening and for them it doesn't really wash to say look this is a financial equation because if it was loads of things wouldn't ever happen there is the other issue though and 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 like I'm I'm in favor of finance but there's there is an element of financialization in in housing which is frustrating because you know, the central banks that are keeping rates low to keep economies alive, the governments that are are, are washing money out uh, to, to keep economies alive, what this does is it, it means that large investment will start to focus on where it can get a return. And at the moment, that's in housing. And and there's a huge amount of development that is happening that goes straight into the investment world, straight into, you know, private rented sector. I'm not saying it's wrong. We need it. But it would just be nice if that was balanced out by bigger developments and apartment blocks that people could buy and if they were affordable but we seem to get peak dysfunction all the time here again and again
2: Nasa, that's very briefly well
4: the problem with that that kind of model is where you get investment it's the wrong sort of investment it's built to rent which is really to my mind
2: substandard housing all right we're going to have to leave there by thanks to nasa hurrigan to carl Dieter, and to kate gleason and after the break dr caroline west on the future of the irish dating scene will we be seeing a summer of love in open spaces Now with summer fast approaching and hopes of summer love on the horizon for many how will we adapt to dating in person again well sex educator and host of the Glow West podcast Dr Caroline West joins me now uh, Dr you are very welcome exactly. to the program i think sometimes people think that perhaps dating didn't happen through covid but it has continued over the last yeah. 14 months but it's changed
7: yeah it wasn't officially meant to be happening but look we're humans you know we crave to we crave intimacy so people did go out and date you know a lot of it was online though which is fair enough and it's kind of made us reflect a little bit more about what we want from dating you know some of the questions I'm getting in for vice columns and things it's like how do I actually get back into real life dating because they're so used to zoom dating and others are like don't ever put me on a zoom dating call again I'm done I'm ready to go like dive in so it's a real kind of mix of emotions for people there's hesitancy and others are like let's go Let's get in here. But
2: what I did notice was a lot of people, uh, when you were allowed to meet up with somebody else for exercise, for example, a lot of people meeting somebody for a walk, a walk and a takeaway coffee, which isn't really the traditional Irish dating scene.
7: No, way less alcohol for sure. And I think that's a really healthy thing because a lot of our relationships start at like 2 a.m. in the pub, you know, when we're not maybe looking our best or making the right decisions kind of around that time. So I think it's nice that people are actually trying out sober dating, you know, and maybe having better conversations getting to know someone on on maybe maybe a a deeper level you know before we get sex and intimacy involved so once that's off the table we might actually look at people as whole people first you know rather than and we took dutch courage off off
2: the table too did we
7: yes definitely which is you know it's a good thing you know it might kind of really make us reflect on how we actually date now and and give us more confidence to go forward as a sober dater perhaps or so do you think
2: it could have a long-term impact then on how we look at dating
7: yeah i think people more flexible you know it would be almost an odd thing to suggest a day outside the pub before you know it's like when internet dating first came in it was a weird thing to do it wasn't really a normal thing and it was for someone maybe you might assume on their last chance kind of thing and now you know, we suggest a date outside and that's fine. It's a really normal, actually healthy thing. So, you know, it's, it's a nice way of of kind of shaking it up a little bit. And I think that's only going to be a good thing.
2: Uh, there was a really interesting survey I know that you mentioned uh, in your notes about uh, Bumble or uh, the Bumble carried out the app. And it said that COVID has really made people stop in their tracks, particularly, I suppose, older people yeah. who are on the dating scene and made people say what is it or ask themselves, what is it I truly want from life now?
7: Absolutely. Yeah. And and that was surprising because I thought a lot of people, once lockdown lifted, they would be making up for lost time, you know, kind of dating as many people as they possibly could. But a lot of people actually said, no, I actually wanted to find someone to settle down with. And I think that was really interesting. But I think the lockdown really highlighted that for a lot of people in the loneliness and going, well, actually, I want something substantial and something that actually means something. So I think people reflected on what they were looking for and what they had to offer a relationship because we don't often think about about those things we just kind of go along with things sometimes so i think that's a really healthy thing to to have
2: that self-reflection was it particularly difficult do you think and where they've forgotten about those and i will say women because they do tend to be more conscious of the age um, with which they meet somebody was it particularly difficult for a certain cohort of women who were hoping to meet somebody and who have perhaps or feel that they've lost 14 months of that search of that time.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I've got a lot of messages from people who are like, my time is running out. You know, what do I do? Um, I think visits to sperm banks are going to absolutely shoot through the roof um, because people are going, you know, I actually don't need to wait around for someone or else I don't have time and they want to go along that way. So that's going to be an interesting makeup in in different family structures that we have then down the line. And, you know, different levels of autonomy of going, I actually don't need the traditional structure. I can just do this on my own. So, you know, it's going to change
2: society, I think, for a long, long, long time. Are people anxious? at the idea of getting back out there? Are people concerned that perhaps, you know, and I've heard it said a lot over the last, you know, 12 months, Irish people, we've lost the ability to converse and to have banter and to chat and be relaxed and to socialise because, you know, we haven't really had the opportunity to do it.
7: Yeah, absolutely. There's, I think we're recognising now how much social anxiety was really out there. But if you've spent the last year not really talking to anyone or sitting on the couch in your pyjamas, you know, as as I did for quite a lot of it. No judgement. Yeah, absolutely. Like we might have forgotten how to flirt or we might have, you know, maybe put on some weight during the pandemic and there's no shame on that. But we maybe we're not used to our new bodies that we have. And again, you know, that might take a little bit of getting used to. But I think, you know, the whole getting up close and personal when we've been told for a year, if you do that, you might catch something and die or your relatives will die. That's pretty scary stuff. So to, to get up close and personal and naked with another person. You know I can understand that, that, that that's a very
2: anxiety driven process for a lot of people out there. And yet, as you say, a doctor, you know, despite what some of the rules and regulations people had needs and wants and it was happening um, during the last 14 months and a little earlier, I spoke to consultant in sexual health, Dr. Ashleen Loy, about our relationship with casual sex during the pandemic, and I began by asking her what she has been seeing in her clinic. I see a
9: very skewed version because
2: generally by virtue of the fact that people are
9: coming to see me they've been having sex um, and usually with someone outside of their normal monogamous relationship so normally I'd see people who are generally single or dating and changing sexual partners or have symptoms of an STI so I get a skewed version of events but let's just say we haven't We haven't been sitting idle for the last year, we've been very, very busy. Um, Now there has been a curtailment of services, especially in the public sector, because a lot of redeployment of staff to COVID. Um, But we have been busy throughout the whole entire time. Um, And the thing we're seeing is that the people that are presenting to us now are a lot more complex. They are much more likely to have an STI because the people who are getting through to us are the people who are symptomatic. Um, However, many STIs are asymptomatic. So for every symptomatic that we see and we diagnose, there is a huge amount of asymptomatic people out there in the community not getting tested or treated. So that's our worry.
2: And I know you said, um, Dr Lloyd, that a lot of people who would have come into your clinics were quite embarrassed at the idea of having to come in and say that they had, you know, met somebody and had casual sex and perhaps had an STI and maybe were a little bit more reticent to come forward, given the restrictions that were in place at the time.
4: Yeah,
9: there's a lot of shame and stigma anyway in accessing sexual health care in Ireland in general, compared to, say, our neighbours in the UK. Um, and that was made even more so with the, the pandemic and the COVID um, social distancing rules that need to be in place. Um, but obviously, people were worried that they would be given out to that they couldn't, say, attend appointments because they might get stopped. Or, you know, they weren't unsure that they were allowed to still come and see a doctor, even if it was outside of their five kilometres And often when they'd come to us, they'd be very sheepish and, you know, maybe give us a story about having sex with their flatmate or something like that. Not realising that for us, our primary concern is getting them diagnosed and treated. We weren't there and aren't there to give out to people about how they acquired it. You know, there's 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 no sort of judgment on our part, although we do obviously encourage people to stick to the guidelines.
2: So given the fact that asymptomatic people weren't generally coming forward to get tested, did you see a fall then in the number of STIs being diagnosed over the past 14 months?
9: Yeah, there's been a significant decrease in access to care um, over the last 14 months. So a huge number of clinics have shut. Many people haven't been able to access their GPs. Um, So there has been a decrease in things like chlamydia and gonorrhea, for example. There's been a decrease in HIV. But funnily enough, there's actually been an increase in syphilis diagnoses, and we were talking very recently about how we've noticed, even in the heterosexual community, we started seeing more and more syphilis when we usually, more we would normally see it in men who have sex with men. However, we're starting to see it spill over into the heterosexual community, and in recent weeks have seen quite serious presentations of syphilis in um, across the spectrum of people presenting. So that's a bit of a concern. Um, and many people who present are presenting haven't been missed, say, for many months with rashes or non-specific symptoms that have been passed off as other things or they've passed it off themselves as other things. But actually, ultimately, it is something like syphilis that can be diagnosed and can be treated so long as they test for it.
2: And just very briefly, are you expecting then to see a huge rise in the number of STIs as things reopen and more asymptomatic people come forward over the next, you know, six to twelve months?
9: Yeah, absolutely. You know, even in the last few weeks, we've started to see our clinic numbers increase. Now, thankfully, the HSE is rolling out a pilot at the moment, which will increase access to care, whereby people can go on SH. 24.ie, that's sexual health24.ie, and order online test kits for free. And they're good for people who are asymptomatic um, that they can test at home. So that's only in Dublin, um, Kerry, and Cork that there's a pilot scheme. And it seems to be going very well. About 200 tests are released a day, and um, people are accessing that. And all those tests are going every day. So that will increase the access and hopefully will get rolled out nationwide. but yes, we are expecting a huge increase because of all these undiagnosed infections, the lack of access to care over the last year um, will definitely have a huge knock on impact um, on our, our um, trajectory over the next couple of years.
2: All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Ashley Loy, thank you for speaking to us this evening. Thank you, Ciara. Uh, Dr. West, I see you nodding your head yeah. in agreement with everything um, Dr. Loy was saying.
7: It's, it's going to be an overwhelming um, case of STIs coming forward or even things like the morning after pill. There's a lot of unwanted pregnancies at the moment because people are too embarrassed and, and feel that they'll be judged for having sex during the pandemic. So they're not going to get a morning after pill. And I think that's just really sad, you know, that, that we shouldn't be judging people for a basic human you know, interaction.
2: Um, very briefly, summer is ahead. It sounds like we might get out and be able to mix and socialise again. For all of those out there who are looking to find love this summer, what's your advice briefly?
7: Try out all the outdoor dining that's going to be there. It could be a whole new fun experience for, for everything. Still keep maybe the Zoom dating for something. You know, it's kind of handy to be able to date from your couch. You don't have to get too dressed up or anything. But there is a whole world of getting back out there with all the outdoor events mm-hmm. as well. And and just have fun and, be you know, be safe
2: absolutely we we'll leave it there but thanks so much uh, for coming into us this evening that's all we have time for i'll be back here tomorrow night at 10 p.m. the next news bulletin will be here on Ireland AM at 7 a.m. but until then good night